P-O-D-C-A-S-T, Podcast Aid Society, <laughs> heads held high, touch the sky, you mean everything to me, <laughs> in a fix, in a bind, call us anytime, we'll appear from nowhere, mighty are we, P-O-D-C-A-S-T, <laughs> Podcast in society, honesty, loyalty, we pledge to thee. <laughs> you can stop now because I didn't guess that you were going to do it off key. Of course I had to do that one. You knew I was going to do that one. Yeah. It's the worst song that there <laughs> is. It's the worst song. And I had to sing it off key to be authentic to <laughs> the way it's performed in the movie, which is just awful. It just, it, it's really bad. Really bad. I hate that song. I have always hated that song. I have been uh, tormenting uh, my girlfriend with that song all week. Mm -hmm. And she hates it very much. (laughs) And we all hate it. And what a perfect, unlistenable introduction to this week's episode. Let's start the show. And welcome to Me, Mom, and the Mouse, a podcast about the joy of watching cartoons with your family. We're watching every film in the Disney animated canon and talking about how it was made, what it means, and why we love it or don't. My name is Isaac Coleman, a member of the Podcast Aid Society, and I'm joined as always by my mother, Rue Coleman. Hello, Isaac. Your brother suggested that it might flow better if it was the podcast Ing Society. What? Why would I want to make it flow better? Has he heard the song? Exactly. It has to be bad. Yep. Well, and you're not going to spell the I-N-G part. We want to give a special shout out to our editor, Brad Murray at Oak Studios. Thanks for all the work that you do. You do mean everything to me. <laughs> this week on the program, we are continuing Disney's Bronze Era with 1977's Theris Cures. Theris <laughs> Cures. AKA The Rescuers. <laughs> directed by Wolfgang Reitherman, John Lounsbury, and Art Stevens. Yep. Time to finally say goodbye to Wolfgang Reitherman. Is this his last one? Pretty sure. And I believe basically he started directing this movie, but did not see it through to the end. And I think that's why we've got those two other guys. Mm-hmm. I know definitely John, John Lounsbury was unable to finish. But I don't recall what it said about Wolfgang Reitherman. Good old Wooly. Apparently, he was actually involved throughout The Rescuers, and he was originally slated to direct The Fox and the Hound, but then that didn't happen. Uh, And then he worked on some other undeveloped Disney projects, including uh, Musicana, which would have been basically a sequel to Fantasia. Uh, But none of the stuff he made uh, or was working on got made, and so he got upset and he retired. Um, So this is the last movie he really worked on. Uh, And Fox and the Hound is just just a mess. We'll we'll, get there when we get there. We'll get there next week, unfortunately. (laughs) We will have to watch The Fox and the Hound, which is legally a movie. Uh, But what does this movie, The Rescuers, mean to you, Mom? Well, I had the storybook record of this movie as a child that I listened to quite a bit. With this one, I understand what your dad was saying when he said how with Robin Hood, the movie feels stretched to him because he really likes the tight compactness of the record story. Right. I kind of feel that way about The Rescuers, that I always remember The Rescuers being more interesting 
than the movie <laughs> actually is because, you know, it's tighter on the record. The oh, Rescue yeah. Aid Society song doesn't go on nearly as long. None of the songs do. All of the songs are much shorter and they just tell you the story, you know, pretty quick. And I'm sure they cut out some scenes. I don't remember the whole exactly what's on the record, but I was thinking about it. I was like, ah, now I kind of understand what he's talking about. With the asterisk that I think that Robin Hood is pretty well paced in movie form if you don't have that bias. Correct. And The Rescuers is a long 77 minutes. Yeah, I do really like the story of The Rescuers. I like a lot of the characters. I don't even hate the Rescue Aid Society song the way you do. But there are several parts of it that when I watch it now that I find they drag and some parts are just kind of boring. I own the two movie Blu-ray set, but I think when you were a kid, we had the uh, we had a VHS that was recorded off of like TV with this movie. Yes, definitely. We had a that kind of a VHS and I don't think we owned Down Under, but I, I know I saw it. Not until I bought the not until I bought the Blu-ray set that had both. I, I definitely watched this movie quite a bit do, using the uh, VHS that was recorded off of TV in which. And I love this movie as a kid. I wonder if it was edited for TV <laughs> as well. I don't know. It was probably recorded off like the Disney Channel for us. And I really enjoyed this movie as a kid. I, I distinctly remember uh, seeing it on plane and really loving it. Uh, and, and just like, I don't know. I think I really connected with like, it had a darker tone. It seemed cooler. It seemed like there was more real peril to it. Yeah. And then this is why I remember when we got the Blu-ray, I watched it and it was around the rescue aid society song where I was like, why does this suck? <laughs> and every subsequent time I've watched it since then, you know, every time I've watched it as an adult, I've liked it less and less. And I, I think that is kind of how this movie is because, uh, uh, you know, I, I mentioned my girlfriend. We watched it with her virtually. Uh, she, this was her first time joining a Meemaw Mouse screening. And beforehand, I asked her, like, what do you think of this movie? And she was like, oh, I really liked it. Uh, it's very cute and fun and great. And then after watching it again, I asked her, what would you think? And she was like, I was way more boring than I remember. <laughs> And that's the same thing I've been talking, you know, with coworkers about doing this, like because there was a, a work event planned tonight. And instead, I'm recording an episode on the rescuers. <laughs> and they, I mentioned how I thought it was boring. And they were like, oh, no, I really liked that movie. And I was like, when was the last time you watched it? And they're like, <laughs> when I was eight. And I'm like, I don't I don't think this movie holds up for adults. I think it maybe resonates with kids, but uh, yeah. I, I don't care for this movie. I went in with an open mind, hoping I would like it, thinking mm -hmm. like, well, at least this is, you know, good for the bronze era. Yeah. No, after wrestling with myself for some time, I like the Aristocats better than this. <laughs> of the bronze era movies we've watched, this is the one I've, I like the least. Now, Fox and the Hound is coming next week, so yeah. I'm, I'm sure that will take the cake. And if not, there's Black Cauldron coming up right behind, but... Thus far, uh, the the rescuers. I really do not care for this movie. Mm -hmm. I I wish I did. It's like conceptually, yeah. I want to like it. I feel like I should like it, but I don't. And maybe that's what makes it even more frustrating. I think because I still have the nostalgia of loving it as a child more. I think I still probably like it better than Aristocats. I don't know. They're probably closer to even for me. Yeah. 
But if you told me you have to watch one of these two, I'd say I'll watch The Rescuers. <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't know what I'd do in, in such a dark situation. <laughs> uh, maybe I would watch Rescuers Down Under. That is the other thing, actually. I did have one coworker who was like, oh, I love that movie. You know, I love the like the crocodile character and the or, the, or whatever it is. The like, I love the lizard character and the big eagle. And I was like, no, you're thinking of the second one. The second one's good. Obviously, we haven't watched it for the podcast yet. But uh, when I've watched Down Under as an adult, I've been like, oh, I, this is good. I like this. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, let's talk about the production of Thera Skewers. I was surprised to discover how early they started working on this movie in the early 60s. It's based on books. Yes. You've read the books. Tell us about the books. So there's a series of books by Marjorie Sharp, the Rescuers series. The first book being called The Rescuers, and it came out in 1959. And this movie is suggested by (laughs) The Rescuers and... I'm sorry, I think it said in the credits, suggested by characters from The Rescuers and Miss Bianca. Something like that. It's like we just barely legally obligated to The Rescuers. The first book came out in 59, the second one in 62. That's the ones it's very loosely based on. Um, And originally they were going to be basing this movie more on the first book in which the mice rescue a poet, an adult, from imprisonment like he's a political prisoner so he didn't actually do any like crime he's just a political prisoner and they're going to rescue him and uh disney thought that was a bit too political for an animated cartoon which is believable they were rescuing him from a totalitarian government and walt was not as opposed to totalitarian Mm -hmm. governments as you and i might be so i own the first three the rescuers miss bianca and the turret And my mom owns at least one, probably two more, which was Miss Bianca in the Salt Mines and Miss Bianca in the Orient. So I had read those all when I was growing up. There's actually four more that I don't think I've ever even read. I bet that Orient one has aged super well. Probably. It has been a long time since I read that one, and I do not remember it very well. I actually remember the Salt Mines one better. I bet it's not (laughs) problematic at all. Of the ones that I remember well... In two of them, they rescue children, and in two of them, they rescue adults. So, you know, it's not even a thing where it's all children. Well, it's not the Rescue Aid Society. It's not. It's the Prisoner's Aid Society. And the whole goal of the Prisoner's Aid Society is to encourage prisoners and entertain them, you know, just while they're in prison. It's, you know, mice befriending prisoners to keep their spirits up while they're in jail. (laughs) That's the whole society. P R I S O N E R S. No, their song is something like cheese, cheese, beautiful cheese. What can compare to it? Already better. I can't remember the rest of it. I can't remember the rest of it. Obviously, there's no tune in the book, but there is actually they have a theme song for the Prisoner's Aid Society. They should have used that <laughs> one. That's that's way better. Uh, I mean, I guess they wanted it to be more serious. They just. The, the direction for this movie really feels like it was like, no fun. So it's interesting that they were originally thinking about doing the story of the rescuers. And then they're like, nah, nah, too political. And then they were apparently doing Miss Bianca in the Antarctic, which I read had something to do with rescuing a bear, polar a bear polar that's bear. in captivity, um, like in a circus or something. So, you know, bongo. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Not again. Ah! 
the two most boring Disney things cross <laughs> but over. With, uh, but with Louis Prima being Louis the Bear. Yeah, and they had, uh, there are six songs that were written by Floyd Huddleston that were going to be sung by Prima, which yeah. uh, they have been released. You can, I believe you can find them online if you look for them. Oh, I did not look for them. Like demo versions, mind yeah, you. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah, of course. And also Red Fox, uh, who was a comedian from the time, was going to be cast <laughs> as a lion. Uh, it was going to be, it sounds like it would have been a lot more fun. Sounds like a movie I'm much more into, to be frank. And then Prima had a brain tumor. He did. And so then they scrapped all that. The whole movie was built around him. So, uh, yeah. but it, it is funny. You know, we talked in the, in the Robin Hood episode about Louis Prima. And <laughs> apparently despite, you know, despite his silliness, they, uh, they actually did think about bringing him back. Yeah. And then it just didn't work out. The book that this one has the most similarity to, and by most similarity, I mean not really similar at all, is the one that's just called Miss Bianca. The uh, the Disney wiki uh, has a whole list of all the differences between... There's not even a point in listing <laughs> the differences. I mean, they're, everything is different. <laughs> right? Um, there's a character named Bernard. There's a character named Miss Bianca. <laughs> Their characters are not even the same. Like they aren't even exactly the same characterizations in the book as they are in the movie. <laughs> I, I have not read the books in a long time, if at all. I can't remember for sure if I did. But one thing I read is that in the books, they do have maybe some romantic attraction, but there's... It's it's one of those things of like, but even if we do both like each other, we can never act on it because of class, because we have totally different classes, because I guess mouse society has classes, which is the most yes. depressing idea I can imagine that the animal kingdom would introduce class. Well, Miss Bianca is owned by a little boy who is the son of an ambassador. Wow. You see, so she lives in a beautiful cage um and she has like a lovely necklace that's like a golden chain and she is the prized possession of this family and bernard is just a random brown mouse you see <laughs> um, also the disney wiki claims that the film leaves the romance up to interpretation no it doesn't no no it doesn't no, it doesn't at all I, I did because there's like not a lot to talk about with this movie. I looked into the Disney wiki comments to see if we could have fun reading more of those. Oh, no, no, they're too bad to read for a joke. I no, listen. Don't read them. Genuine. I, I am not kidding. No nope. parents. If you are uh, listening to this, if you want to pause for a second, uh, listen to just this part without the kids. Uh, you need to block the Disney wiki from Internet your children can access. Because people are just posting not <laughs> at all appropriate or even like pleasant things on the Disney wiki comments. I, it's it's an awful website. I, I have to say it's very in-depth articles, but it's an awful mm -hmm. website. It's not worth it. Well, anyway, that's enough. Uh, kids, come back. Welcome back. Uh, <laughs> we were just talking about uh, cooties or whatever. <laughs> Deductibles. Adult stuff. So <laughs> the idea that they had, uh, because again, the animation studio is kind of failing. Uh, Robin Hood did okay. 
but relative to its budget and the cost of animation in general and this idea that we can only release a film once every so often and more than anything else, Disney is just losing money in all divisions at this time. Throughout the 70s, pretty much the only thing that's making money are the theme parks and sometimes the merchandise. And that's mainly because of Card Walker, who we <laughs> talked about a little bit in the Robin Hood episode and who I've been reading more about since and who was a lunatic. <laughs> he, well, I mean, there's different interpretations of it, but his job, Card Walker had ultimate authority at Disney at this time, and his main job was to block... This was what he decided his job is, mind you, to block anything that Walt Disney would not have done. And I shared with you one of the most extreme examples of this. This is from the book Disney War, which I've been reading. Disney War by James B. Stewart. Fascinating book that I'm I'm definitely glad I picked up because it gives so much context for the era we're talking about and the insane coked up executives who would run Disney from the 70s through the 90s. Um, <laughs> Card Walker might not have been coked up, but his successors were, no doubt. So the example I shared with you was the film Tron, uh, which we both enjoy. Hello, programs. You especially yeah. like it. Except it's greetings, programs. See, there you go. I'm a fake fan. I'm a fake I'm a fake geek girl because I'm, <laughs> I'm not a girl. That, that would indeed be false. So Tron came out going up against Annie and E.T., Two ginormous films that each had marketing budgets of more than $10 million. And Card Walker refused to do any marketing for them other than the barest minimum of like put a poster in the cinemas because it, he, he said Walt didn't do much advertising. He mostly relied on word of mouth. And so they had to rely on word of mouth too. And even after the first weekend where Tron predictably got curb stomped into paste in terms of box office, like I think it was like six at the box office. It's not even that it was losing to E.T. and Annie. It was losing to movies nobody remembers. He was like, no, no, word of mouth will carry us through. It's so crazy though, because Walt did plenty of advertising. I mean, we've even already talked about it on this he show. He did so much. With, wasn't it with Lady and the Tramp, where they brought out the book a couple of years in advance so that people would know the story before the animation animated movie came out? He had a whole TV show called Disneyland to advertise Disneyland <laughs> before it opened. Right. That's what I was going to say. They advertised the movies for years beforehand, right. they'd have the stars on the Disneyland show. And it's true. He didn't advertise things the way that they advertised things in the 70s. Because he didn't live in the 70s. But you know he'd have been doing it. Of course, because he was a shrewd businessman. And so was Roy O. Disney. And they would have done whatever was necessary to make money. They would not have continued to do what they were doing in the 50s and, and early 60s yeah, because yeah. what they were doing in the 50s and 60s wasn't what, what they were doing in the 40s, wasn't what they were doing in the 30s, you know. They, they, well, and Tron is such a weird concept. Yeah. That movie would only have worked if they had advertised it properly because it's so different and unique. Like, they hadn't done anything like that before. And your dad was telling me that when he went and saw that movie, he actually got to go see it in the theaters when he was little. And he tried to tell his classmates about it. And he didn't have the words. And they couldn't understand what he was on about. He was like, it was just so cool. But how was it cool? I, I don't know. It was just so cool. 
<laughs> and finally, another of his friends went and saw it and they could talk about it, but nobody else could understand. <laughs> that is a psychedelic sci-fi film in the mm-hmm, early mm-hmm. 80s. It might not have made E.T. money, but it could have done pretty well for itself. So this is why, even though we talked about like Robin Hood was quite a success and The Many Adventures of Way the Pooh, which would come out the same year as The Rescuers, was a big success. The company is losing too much money in general because Card Walker has bad ideas. <laughs> and uh, and he's not the only one, but I, you know, he was in charge of the whole company. And, right. And so a lot of the blame goes on him and Top down, he he's the one perhaps most responsible for instituting the policy of don't do anything new. And so the idea they have is, well, let's do an A movie and a B movie. We'll do a super cheap B movie, and then we'll have sort of a full-scale A movie that takes the usual Disney four-plus years to make and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. And the A movie they were going to do was an adaptation of the Paul Gallico book Scruffy, led by Ken Anderson, zero surprise there, in my opinion, (laughs) which was about uh, the monkeys of Gibraltar under World War II that would be threatened by the Nazi Party's attempt to capture them from the British Empire during World War II. It sounds insane. It sounds extremely dark for a (laughs) Disney animated movie. Another one of Cardwalker's big things is we have to only make Family movies, even in the 70s and 80s, where the nuclear family is starting to not exist the way it did in the 50s or even the 60s. You know, there's a lot more divorce. People are a lot more cynical. The movies and theaters that are more successful, especially in the 70s, are often more cynical and more dealing with the realities of life and more, you know, all all of this stuff. So no surprise, he shoots down Scruffy. Or at least the the studio leaders shot down Scruffy, but I assume that's him or his boys. Um, and they instead choose to make The Rescuers. Well, The Rescuers was going to be the B movie as far as I could see. Yes, 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 yes. The Rescuers was going to be the B movie. And as made, it's still a cheap movie. Uh, it still was made, I believe, in only like two years was most of the work done because mm-hmm. uh, the Prima film stopped in 75 so I'm sure they were able to reuse some things, but yeah, they they totally redo the movie because the veteran team is on it now. Uh, Frank and Ollie, two of the nine old men, are involved uh, and heavily redo the story. Uh, Milt Call also is involved, and Milt Call was the last of the nine old men to leave Disney, uh, and I believe he left during this film or shortly mm-hmm. after. Uh, Milt Call's main thing he did on this movie, he was the sole animator for Madame Medusa. Yeah. And yeah, and they change basically everything about the book. They make a totally new movie. They thought about changing it even more. When they came up with the Bayou setting, for a while it still had more fun songs. Um, Mm -hmm. The Bayou creatures were going to be led by a singing bullfrog voiced by Phil Harris, which also (laughs) sounds more fun. But instead, again, they just kept making it, I feel like, less and less enjoyable. And one of the things that happens is the demos of the songs written by Huddleston were scrapped for new songs by Carol Connors, Sammy Fain, Shelby Flint, and Ayn Robbins. Their big decision, their big idea was, what if they're not musical songs that are sung by the characters what if it's sort of ambient songs yeah 
Like with Bambi. Yeah, except not even with a chorus, just Carol Connors uh, singing. No, Shelby Flint. Sorry, just Shelby Flint singing. And it this is a bad idea and it sucks. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't like a single song in this movie. I don't remember a single song in this movie except for the one I hate. <laughs> yeah, I've heard the record enough times that I can remember parts of them, but they... All of them tend to feel like they just go on a long time. Another person we have to talk about and who I think must have had quite an impact on this movie is Don Bluth, who we've been dancing around. Don Bluth, of course, uh, a big deal of an animator and a, a young guy by the standards of Disney at the time. Yeah, this is when a lot of the the people who are going to be the most important animators coming up are getting their start. Right. Uh, Glenn Keane, Ron Clements, uh, among others, they they had gotten their start previously, but this is where they're starting to step up because this is another big thing about Disney at the time. And I said, we're going to save the, you know, big Bluth discussion for Fox and the Hound. And I stand by it. I think that's the right place to have it. But as we'll talk about even more then, there's all this conflict between the old animators especially, who just would not give up power. It's one thing to stay at the company, it's one thing to really roadblock the younger people from getting to have anything to do, and that's more what they did. And again, we'll talk about that more next week. But Don Bluth, everyone agreed, was going to be the next big guy. Uh, He was going to kind of take over for the nine old men Uh, And Fox and the Hound was at one point, again, we'll talk about it, going to be his big, like, now you get to direct a movie. And so on this movie, he was promoted to animation director, which is the first time anyone of that generation of Disney animators got to that level of hierarchy in the company. He's still not even a director, but he is an animation director. He has a lot of uh, impact on the look of the film and some of the tone And I think that's why this movie has both a darker tone and literally like a darker color palette. You know, it's because Bluth, that's what he likes in doing research for Bluth. I rewatched Secret of Nim, uh, which is, you know, his first solo movie Uh, solo. You know, he didn't make it on his own, but that's the first movie he directed uh, post Disney. And of course, he did like American Tale and uh he likes a bit of darkness. He likes a bit of anxiety. He he was kind of pushing the Disney movies to get darker, to get a little more real. Because again, he is not literally a child of the 70s. I believe he was born in the 40s or 50s. But, you know, he the 70s are contemporary to him. He's He's more hip. He's more with it. So he wants to make a darker, grittier movie that is the style of the 70s. And once he gets to go do that, it's pretty good. And in fact, I think a lot of the worst Don Bluth movies are the ones where he's trying to be fun, like the movie I can't believe we've brought up three times, <laughs> Rock-A-Doodle, which is like, let's be funny and goofy. And it's like, no, <laughs> not your strength. There is more, some more darkness in this movie than in the more recent ones, especially if you put, since it's right after Winnie the Pooh, which has no darkness at all. (laughs) That movie is stuffed with fluff. Yes, but this, this is, this is one of the darkest Disney movies. Um, And I, so far, well, yes, (laughs) Uh, even I would say to this day, it is one of the darkest movies of the canon. Wink, wink. 
But I, I'll talk about why the darkness doesn't work for me. But I do think maybe some of the seriousness is I think this movie is maybe a little bit at war with itself in terms of are we a funny, cutesy, heartwarming Disney film or are we a 70s movie? I don't think it it nails that. But uh, Blue <laughs> steps up in this. And I, I will also say there is a story that the reason Bluth ended up leaving Disney was because he asked why the whites of the characters' eyes weren't colored in, and he was told it was too expensive. Yes, sometimes they were, and sometimes they weren't in this movie. He and fellow animator Gary Goldman, who would continue to be like his partner in crime as he goes to do Secret of Nim, used their own equipment to prove that that was not true, that it was not more expensive. And the studio and the execs and the nine old men were basically like, all right, shut up. You know, just like, don't we didn't actually want you to prove this. Like, just just don't question us. Just do it. You're told. And there's there's a story that I saw cited in, in several places. I think just because once again, it's on Wikipedia and everyone's like, that's true uh, that that's why he left. That is not why he left. I think that is a story that is indicative of why he would leave. Mm-hmm. But that was not the moment that really caused him to leave. We'll talk about what that was next week. This movie was indeed super well received. It's still very well liked. A lot of people consider it the best of the Bronze Era. And I read a lot of people talk about like, well, this is the only good Bronze Era movie. Like, you know, it's it's not a great movie, but it's there's nothing but crap on either side of it. And it's like this movie came out the same year as Winnie the Pooh. (laughs) (laughs) I thought it was very interesting reading all of the like reviews and stuff from the time where people were like, oh, it's like a breath of fresh air. It's so different. And I'm like, maybe that's why they liked it. I think so. Didn't feel like same old, same old. Like, of course, they used so many of the same voice actors and even occasionally animations in Jungle Book and Aristocats and Robin Hood, right? And even in Little Winnie the Pooh, but... They felt very much more samey than this one, even though this one does have some of the same voice actors again. Specifically, it has the pairing of Pat Buttram and George Lindsay again, but it's a much more minor role because they're just a couple of the uh, swamp critters that it doesn't feel as much like it's the same. So maybe that is why people liked it. I think that's what it is. And I think that's why a lot of people still like it today because it is darker. Mm-hmm. And again, especially with the 70s, I, I the 70s, I have to say, probably my favorite decade of film. I, I love 70s movies. I feel like it's one of the most consistent decades where I rarely do I watch. I mean, I, of course, there's a lot of crap, whatever. But the 70s, one of my favorite <laughs> decades of film. And the big movement is towards realism And, you know, this is the way it is. And of course, the 70s are a super cynical time. There's a lot of bad stuff going on. People have every right to be cynical and to feel like life is maybe not so good in the late 60s and 70s. And so I do think that, like, people were getting tired of Disney's we're trapped in the 50s forever type shtick. So I think that's part of the reason people love it. And I... Again, I think it does play better for kids, but I, it's not good. But this was the most successful movie, animated movie. This was the most financially successful animated movie for many years. Do you know what film beat its record? Um, I saw this on one of the articles I was looking at, but I can't recall now. 
It's a movie that came out in 1986, and it is, uh, perfectly enough, maybe ironically enough, it is a film directed by Mr. Don Bluth. It is an American tale. Yes, that's right. One of a a super, super bleak movie. (laughs) (laughs) True. People people were in the mood for it. People were like, sad animated movies, that's what will make money. Mm. And it had a great song. American Tale is better than this movie, for sure. Right. Oh, for sure. I did remember seeing, though, that this movie actually beat out Star Wars in France. (laughs) Oh! This movie made more money on opening weekend, or it may have even been like opening month or something, than Star Wars in France, which is like, that's pretty crazy. They did actually come out pretty close to the same time because Star Wars came out in May and this came out in June. We love the Star Wars. Or no, we don't love the Star Wars. We love the rescuers. And think about it. All those long, (laughs) slow, moody songs where nothing's really happening on the screen. Isn't that like classic (laughs) French That's so mean. (laughs) I know, I'm sorry. You can just cut that out. Everyone needs to hear... My mother bashing the French. <laughs> uh, you, you, you may be onto something. There may, there may be. I mean, I love French film there, but especially in the 70s, it's true that it may be more the pace they were used to than Star Wars. I don't know. I have no idea why that would be. I have no idea, but I just thought it was a funny fact. It is a funny fact. There was a home video release of this movie. It came out on VHS and Laserdisc. And then it came out again on VHS a second time in 1999 but it was recalled three days later. And the reason is because in the movie, there are two frames of a photo of a topless woman inserted into a window that uh, Bernard and Miss Bianca are flying past when they're flying on Orville. Fly past a building, in the window, picture of a topless woman. Very grainy and pixelated. But technically there. And in theaters, nobody could see it because, you know, 24 frames a second... Your eye cannot track that visual information. But once it came out on home video, people could pause. People could go frame by frame for some reason. And people discovered this. Now, <laughs> did was this inserted into the VHS release by a disgruntled animator? Was it inserted into the uh, original film that premiered in theaters by some disgruntled animator? Was it, there's a conspiracy theory that it was inserted by the Disney company intentionally to drive up sales of a movie that was not as popular. Except that's not true because it was very popular. <laughs> it was pretty popular. Uh, not not as much by 1999. It is yeah, true but every that time that's they, they reissued the VHS. Every time they released it in theaters, though, up to that point, it made tons of bucks. Right. No, the conspiracy theory is not true at all. Not, yeah. not in the slightest. But... Uh, that is a thing that uh, people believe for some reason. And, uh, unlike a lot of like Disney nudity scandals where people are like, oh, if you pause the Lion King at the right moment, the clouds kind of look like a Rorschach test and I'm a pervert. Mm-hmm, I don't know. Mm-hmm, like that's mm-hmm. it's, uh, it's uh, people claim to see all kinds of things in Disney movies. This one is in fact real. This one is real. It's not, uh, known to us how it was inserted, why it was inserted, when it was inserted, uh, but it was, of course, re-released with that nudity edited. And uh, I'm sure on the Disney Plus version, you can't find that. No, I'm sure it's not on there. <laughs> uh, so you you mentioned talking about the cast. Would you like to take us through the cast? 
We have um, a lot of new people doing voice acting in this movie. Bob Newhart does the voice of Bernard, and I think he's great in this. I think he's as good in this as he could be, and I think he's great in the sequel. But I love Bob Newhart, one of the first stand-up comedians Dad introduced me to. Incredibly funny, television legend, still around, still kicking at age 91. Uh, And I think still doing stuff occasionally. I think he'll still (laughs) pop up in something. Uh, Oh, apparently he's a recurring character in the Big Bang Theory and Young Sheldon. That's depressing. Mm. But I think Mm. he's doing real things, too. (laughs) Ava Gabor is back, of course, as Miss Bianca. We already talked about her even when we were... We mentioned that she did this even when we were doing Aristocats. And I like her better as Miss Bianca. For sure. Uh, Robbie Lester is also back as her singing voice to sing the Rescue Aid Society song. Yes. Good work if you can get it. Geraldine Page does Madame Medusa. And I was uh, I thought that was great when I found out who it was doing Madame Medusa, because I love her in The Happiest Millionaire. It's a small role, but it's a great one. Is she one of the old women in that? She is. She's the the mother of the groom. From New York. (laughs) That is the best part of that movie, are the two old women uh, and their song. But yes, Geraldine Page uh, obviously worked very closely with Milt Call because he was the one animating her, and he had nothing but good things to say about her. He said that she needed only one take for each of her lines. Hard to believe, but also cool. (laughs) And then Joe Flynn as Mr. Snoops. That is something I did want to talk about, actually, is Mr. Snoops. Mr. Snoops is based on John Colhane. And John Colhane is, he was an Illinois-born reporter. At age 17, he was introduced to Walt, who, like, gave him some writing advice. And he followed that, and he became uh, a very important film historian and then animation historian. And then he kind of just became a Disney historian. He worked with the company specifically. And as he explained how he became the model for the character in 1976, while snooping around the Disney studio on previous assignments, I had gotten to know Milt Call, a master animator who had also designed many of the characters in the Disney cartoons. He's like a big part of the reason the nine old men have the reputation they have. He really was one of the first, you know, we've talked about critics of animation He is one of the first, not really a critic, but historians who really took animation seriously and was like, this is an art form. The nine old men are great artists. They should be respected. And a lot of the information we have about them comes from him. So inadvertently, you know, he's a very important part of our show and of the history of Disney. But so he says, I'd gotten to know Milt Call, a master animator who also designed many of the characters. Uh, In May 1973, Milt gave a guest lecture to a class I was teaching and agreed to draw a poster to announce the event. In the poster, he caricatured both himself and me. When Milt got back to the studio, the artists working on Theraskewers were searching for a look for one of the villains. In the script, he was described as nervous, indecisive, and dominated by Medusa. The short-legged fellow with Milt in the poster looked to director Wooly Reitherman like that kind of guy, and they named him... After my profession, Mr. Snoops. Even before I saw him on the screen, I realized Snoops looked like me because wherever I went in the Disney studio that year, artists passing me in the halls would do a double take, then say to each other, it's him all right, it's Mr. Snoops. (laughs) 
And if you look at pictures of the two of them right next to each other, it is pretty much one to one. I don't think John Colhane was quite as large as fat uh, or, or necessarily as much of a bumbling dolt. I would be kind of offended if Mr. Snoops was based on me, but he clearly seems to uh, seemed uh, he has passed away to have a good sense of humor about it. Yeah, it seemed like he was like, I got to be in a Disney movie. <laughs> <laughs> I know he he is one of the first Disney fanboys and uh, yep. but he also did good work. I wanted to mention Jim Jordan as Orville the uh, albatross, mainly because he will not be returning for rescuers down under. And <laughs> we'll talk about that when that comes up because he passed away in between. It's true. This was his last uh, performance. And he was lured out of retirement for this movie uh, because he had not performed since the death of his wife and comic partner in, in 1961. I don't know how they lured him out of here. I don't know yeah. why they lured him out. They also lured James McDonald out of uh, retirement to be even rude and Brutus and Nero the uh, crocodiles. Alligators, alligators, alligators. James McDonald, who we've talked about in the past, uh, voice of Mickey Mouse, sound effects artist extraordinaire, awesome dude. Bernard Fox, uh, yet another comedian, or at least a person who is mostly known for comedy. It's Mr. Chairman, the chairman to the Rescue Aid Society, who was a woman in the books, but we can't have that. We certainly <laughs> cannot have that. Interestingly, though, they, they made that character a man, but all the, a lot of the other women in the movie are... Strong roles. Miss Bianca claims the role or claims this case for herself. Mm-hmm. And they're like, really, really? And and she's like, yes, I want to do it. And they're like, oh, OK. And then uh, Madame Medusa, of course, is the partner that is domineering over Mr. Snoops and everybody else. And even Penny is not a damsel in distress where she does nothing. She tries to escape over and over and over, and she does what she can to rescue herself, even though she's like seven years old. It's true. <laughs> there is some There's some of that, yes. I do think yes. gender is a part of this movie, uh, a, a theme they're kind of playing with. I'm not saying they get it across no, great. No, but I, I agree with you. I totally agree with you. I'm going to probably play devil's advocate a lot in this episode and try to point out where things could be considered to be good because you hate it so much. (laughs) I don't even know that I outright hate. I don't know. I guess I have been coming across like I hate it. But yes, here's the thing. My counterpoint is going to be, yeah, but it's boring. That's the thing. I just don't enjoy watching it. So shall we talk about... This movie. Yes, we can talk about this movie. Or shall we sing about it? P-O-D-C-A-S-T. <laughs> I thought it was interesting that this movie is like the third one now that's set in the time period where it was made. So because this movie is actually set in the 70s. It's true. And it's pretty people centric. And also. Uh, and we've all, and it's only the third one we've had like that so far. Though I was thinking this is the first mouse movie of which there will be many other. I mean, you've got uh, Timothy Mouse in Dumbo, but he's not uh, the protagonist and it's not about a mouse society. It's about mostly elephants, obviously. This is the first mouse society movie and uh, it starts with the girl kidnapped, Penny. Yeah, interestingly, it actually starts with a little bit of story before we even get the opening credits. That's very different and that probably contributed to people being like, whoa, it's new. <laughs> there is some interesting use of color in this opening sequence with the first song and the opening credits. 
Uh, the house is purple and red and everything is lit in an interesting way, but it's also still images. It is mostly not animated. Penny comes out of the riverboat and throws the bottle in the water with her message of help. And then as we see the bottle making its journey through the ocean, we hear the song The Journey as we see the opening credits. But during the opening credits, most of these scenes are stills. And they just use some, they do some camera movements to kind of make you feel like maybe something's happening. You're basically getting the journey of the bottle from Penny to the mice. Yes, and we get the suggested by credit, which is funny. And uh, we go to the UN and we meet the mouse UN. And it's interesting, by the way, I think this might be the first, uh, depending on how you count the roustabouts in Dumbo, this is arguably the first movie with people of color in a Disney movie. Certainly the first one with a woman of color, because at the UN, there are a lot of uh, uh, people of color walking around and then sort of mice of color, yeah. I, I suppose, because they take on the attributes of the people they're with very much. And there yeah. is a, a black female mouse with an afro, yep. which is interesting. Because the whole deal here is there is sort of a mouse UN, which is what the Rescue Aid Society is. Yes. And it's under the United Nations. There's also a sign for the Rescue Aid Society in the United Nations building. I think it right. says like mouse entrance. Yeah, so. it's funny because it's like you're trying to figure out, do the human delegates actually know about this? Or is this something the mice have just set up off in a corner where nobody notices? They do not make that clear. Right, because some people can hear mice talking and some people can't. It's all very strange. It's not very well explained. It's a cool idea. This is one of those things for me where it's like mouse United Nations and mouse versions of human life is a cool idea. Maybe just because I like the great mouse detective. Like there is just a Disney movie <laughs> a few years later that kind of does this the way I want it to be done. So the mice delegates are all coming in and sitting at their little with their little signs of the countries they represent. Only some of these countries are not actual countries. One is them says Africa. That's a continent. Mm -hmm. Just so you the country of Africa. Yeah. Well, yep. they only get one. And Arabia, which I know there's a country called Saudi Arabia, but there isn't a country just called Arabia. And there isn't a country called Vienna either. There's actually <laughs> a delegate from Austria and a delegate from Vienna, which is a city in Austria. <laughs> the most important mouse here is, of course, Bernard. The janitor. <laughs> yes, uh, Bob Newhart here, not doing his usual shtick, uh, giving a very grounded performance, not being too silly throughout this movie, yep. even though he does have some jokes it's dry. And he was often very dry, but yep. in a lot of his previous acting roles before this, he'd gone much bigger. That was something reviewers at the time noted. Mm -hmm. uh, and he is pretty instantly likable. It's a it's a it's a friendly design. I love his little hat. Uh, and it's just Bob Newhart being like, oh, hello, everybody. Like, ah, hi, I'm the janitor. And then the worst song of all time happens. Yes, they sing their theme song. They were having Let a, me sing this for you because no, no, I'm worried people won't enough. know what the We've song it. is. It's good. It's good. <laughs> R. Yes. <laughs> and uh, as I recall, this scene lasts for 185,000 minutes. As they're singing it, Miss Bianca comes in late. Mm -hmm. uh, she's the delegate from Hungary, which is fun because uh, Ava Gabor was from Hungary. Right. They're not pretending she's French anymore. Yep. Yep. So she comes in late and 
she's, you know, swishing her hips and every all the male delegates are like drooling over her. It's a little bit creepy, but she has some affection already for Bernard. Yeah, it seems. Yeah. Right off the bat. Yep. She's interested in him. So yeah. they have they have received a a message in a bottle and Bernard comes to help get the message out because, of course, again, he's the janitor. So he brings a ladder that's a comb. And so then he gets the, the note out. There's some mild business. And the whole time, Miss Bianca is like, oh, I love this stupid, clumsy man. <laughs> well, and, and she's the one who can read the message because the chairman, I guess his eyes aren't any good anymore or something because it's a very. And the chairman is being a real jerk to Bernard the whole time. He's like, oh, this idiot. Yes. This big dummy. And it's like, come on, come on, man. <laughs> well, apparently he believes in a class uh, distinction as well. But Miss Bianca does not. <laughs> There's still some of it kicking around and there is something to. Of course, uh, the note is that uh, a, from a, a girl named Penny and she's been kidnapped. And all they know is she's writing to the Morningside Orphanage to tell them that she needs to be rescued. And so the implication here, Miss Bianca steps up to take the mission and the implication is that she's the first female rescuer, I guess. They never actually used that term mm-hmm. in the movie, but no, uh, the first female rescuer to take on a field assignment. Yeah. And uh, they let her choose her own partner and she chooses the janitor. So there is something to this idea of it's, you know, a woman and a, uh, a lower class person, as it would be seen at the time, a working man, a blue collar janitor. You know, these are going to be the heroes of our movie. She chooses Bernard. Aww. I don't know. That's not really a theme, per se, because it's not like they're going up against a rich person exactly. Although I did read an interesting comment that during the Bronze Era, a lot of the villains are driven by greed. <laughs> I, I don't have any like special insight into why that is, but it is an interesting trend. You could read a lot into that, but it's I can't you know say for sure why that is. But uh, we can infer a mom status here for Penny. Penny's mom is dead because she's an orphan. They go to the zoo. Why do they go to the zoo? So Miss Bianca and Bernard are trying to get to the Morningside Orphanage. And they take a bus, which lets them off at a particular corner, you know, wherever they have to get off that's closest to the orphanage. They have to go three blocks down and four blocks over. Or Miss Bianca's like, why don't we just take the shortcut through the zoo? And Bernard's like, um, because it's scary in there, basically. Um, He doesn't say that. But they end up, they have a brief adventure going into the zoo, getting scared, running out, and then taking the long way. So it doesn't really go anywhere. There was going to be a song in this zoo in the musical version of the movie. Uh, if I recall, your Blu-ray has it as a deleted scene. I feel like that was one of the big things. It's is possible. Like, I should have pulled that out and checked out the deleted scenes today, but I did not. Uh, as I recall, there was a song that was going to be here. And then, of course, they cut the song, but uh, they did not have the money uh, or desire to, you know, get rid of all that zoo animation. So instead, there's this very mild peril with a lion. I do appreciate yep, them talking. That you don't even get to see. <laughs> I do appreciate them talking about the lion um, because, well, I, now that I think about it, isn't this the lion that Red Fox was going to play? Possibly, yeah. I think that's what was happening in the zoo. But anyway, as I was going to say, they established that the founder of the Rescue Aid Society 
is Euripides' mouse, who is supposed to be the mouse from Aesop's Fables, who uh, who rescues, you know, who like helps a lion. Right, takes a thorn out of the lion's paw. And so there is kind of an interesting conversation around the lion where Miss Bianca's like, no, Bernard's like, a lion tried to kill me. And Miss Bianca's like, oh, I'm sure that's not what was happening. And he was like, well, he was very grumpy. And she's like, wouldn't you be grumpy if somebody woke you up in the middle of the night? Like, it is fun. Well, it's not really, but it's an interesting (laughs) dynamic that plays out well for these characters. And again, better in the second movie, not to keep saying that, of Mm -hmm. Miss Bianca, she is truly good. She totally believes in the mission of the Rescue Aid Society. Bernard has to be talked into it a little bit. He he always does the right thing. Right. Yeah. He never thought he would be in the position to do any of this, I'm betting. So he it takes him a little longer to, to come along because he's like kind of in shock, I feel like. And I feel like he's more, yeah, he's more used to there being consequences. Like Miss Bianca... We don't really get to find out much about her. That is, as I sort of alluded to, one of my big problems with this movie is I think all the characters are pretty one dimensional, but she clearly seems to be more wealthy. She's a high class mouse. I I would imagine that, you know, clearly she's a good person, but she, you know, to her, it's like it's all just, well, good is good and bad is bad. And there's I've never faced a problem in my life. And through these movies, she continues to just even though they face uh, peril, it all just rolls off her back versus like, you know, Bernard has probably had to deal with financial insecurity. He's clearly had to deal with an abusive boss. He's he's more sensitive to the dangers of the world and he's superstitious, which is me giving this movie too much credit, I feel. But <laughs> eventually they get to the orphanage, though, and they're looking around and they meet Rufus the cat who lives in the orphanage. And they can talk to him and they find out some stuff about Penny from him. And he tells them a memory of his about her. And we actually get it like a flashback. So we get to see Penny interacting with Rufus. And she has a teddy bear that looks a lot like Winnie the Pooh, except he's not wearing the little red shirt. (laughs) Here's the thing about Penny in this movie and the sadness of this movie in general. You know, people talk about this being a darker, sadder movie, and I can imagine our listeners being like, Isaac, you always talk about how much you like when Disney movies get a little sad. And this movie, like, some of the stuff with Penny is affecting because they got a very young girl to voice this six-year-old girl, and a kid in peril is something that tugs at your heartstrings, right? That's just, like, buried in human nature and evolution is protect child, right? So, like... Of course I feel for Penny, in certain parts in particular. But I don't feel like Penny is a very well-developed character. I don't feel like this storyline is super well-developed. I don't feel like she has much to do except be miserable. It's not like we get to see much of her being happy. It, It doesn't play as very, I don't know, affecting to me. It doesn't play as very real like we talked about in the Dumbo episode, how it's like, wow, it's amazing how much this reflects real experiences of marginalized people. Like, I don't know. She's getting kidnapped by a cartoon villain and a very cartoonish villain to pull a diamond out of a skull. And like, again, of course, you know, when her little voice wavers, like it hurts my heart, but I feel like I'm being manipulated a little bit. 
I don't feel like the movie's earning it. I was thinking about the the story, like you were talking about how it's not very deep into any of the characters at all. It reminds me a little bit when we were talking about Sleeping Beauty, how they didn't go into deep into all the characters, right? They were just painting broad brush strokes for most of them, and you you get it, you go along with it, it was fine. But this is not a fairy tale. And you can't just let people fill in the gaps as much with something that's not a fairy tale. It's also not the best looking and best sounding movie of all time, right. like Sleeping, right. Sleeping Beauty, which is one thing we should say. This movie looks like butt, and <laughs> it might be the new Disney Plus version, uh, because I believe I saw the Disney Plus version is slightly different from the Blu-ray version, or maybe it is the Blu-ray version. I didn't pull out my Blu-ray, as I said, to see if it looks any different, but there are certain parts where I'm like, oh, it looks like whoever was repainting this was a child and didn't know how to paint in the lines. I think based on some footage and stills I've seen of like even the DVD version, uh, which of course I was looking at in part to see the naked lady, but the uh, for research purposes, for research <laughs> purposes, I do think whatever restoration is on Disney Plus makes it look worse. This movie never looked very good. It was made incredibly, incredibly cheap, but it looks especially bad now. Um, as you say, the backgrounds and the characters on them feel like they don't exist in the same universe, even slightly. The main point thing they get from Rufus, though, is the next place where they can go look, which is he says that this lady tried to get Penny to get in her car. And he says she wouldn't go with those trashy people. <laughs> I don't know why, but the phrase trashy people cracked. Yeah, it's a bit of a weird line. And Madame Medusa, yet again, my, my recurring complaint. I don't get what her deal is. We forgot to mention during production, they were going to just use Cruella de Vil again. You're right. Yes, we did forget to mention that. They were going to make Cruella de Vil the, the villainess of this one. And then they changed. They, they were like, no, we don't want to have it like a sequel. <laughs> Shows what they know. So there are some there are some elements of Madame Medusa that are reminiscent of Cruella de Vil, but not but not all of them. Oh, so much, so much. But the but the fact that she's a crazy woman that you're like, what is her weirdo deal is very Cruella de Vil. And a driver and or a bad driver. Yeah, her exact car even. Yeah, it's except it's not as specific. Like, I understand Cruella de Vil is like old money. She's this consumer. Yep. She exploits everything to consume. I don't feel like I really get Madame Medusa's game. Other than she wants a diamond. Everybody wants a big diamond. She wants the biggest diamond. I don't understand why she won't even take also the little gems. <laughs> we'll get to that. Yeah, no kidding. I, I should also say I mentioned Milt Call pretty much single handedly animated this character. He also based her on his then wife, Phyllis Bounds, uh, a loosely connected member of the Disney family who he did not like. So this is Milt Call being like, Ugh, this is my awful wife. And that adds a weird energy to the proceedings, I feel. <laughs> I, I feel that way. Anyway, so he 
that's how they get from the orphanage to Madame Medusa's pawn shop. Yes, I did just want to say the other thing Rufus the Cat gives us is a terrible poem that was written by the songwriters to be a poem, and it's terrible. Basically to be like, Faith, it's the thing. It, that's supposed to be the message they're trying to get at Trice. Faith is a bluebird. A bluebird that's stolen from Alice in Wonderland, by the way. <laughs> So Miss Bianca and Bernard get to the pawn shop just in time to hear where Penny is. And I love with the way Madame Medusa answers the phone. Madame Medusa's pawn shop boutique. <laughs> no beef whatsoever with Geraldine Page. Now that I think about it, though, I brought up earlier that all the villains are motivated by greed. They're also often poorer, lower class people motivated by greed, which is not great. Uh, I don't know. It's 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 a little weird. Other than Robin Hood, which rightly is like, no, royalty and like old money is bad. Aristocats in this one, it's like, uh, these people are trying to be above their station. You're a pawn shop owner and you want money. I mean, don't kidnap kids, but uh, I, I don't know. It's it's a it's a little weird that that's the angle they choose to go is the greediness of the poor. Maybe Walt would have liked this movie more than he thought he did. <laughs> but yes, indeed, we meet Madame Medusa, who is. Feels like she's from a different movie because she is. She's Cruella de Vil. But uh, she's she's packing up her suitcase. She's running into the car. Bernard is in the suitcase and Bianca's in the car. So we get some interesting action. Yep, because they're trying to hitch a ride so they can get to Penny. But they end up, the suitcase flies out of the car and they're left behind. So they have to make their own way to Devil's Bayou. Albatross Flight 13. Yep, Albatross Air Service with uh, Orville the Albatross as their uh, both pilot and plane. (laughs) Wikipedia claims this was influenced by Bob Newhart's Wright Brothers sketch, Merchandising the Wright Brothers. I don't see a a real deal source for that. Take it with a grain of salt. I did kind of think about that while watching it, though. I was like, this kind of reminds me of Bob Newhart's very funny Wright Brothers sketch. Well, and also his sketch about how he hates flying, too. Which he did, apparently. Truly hates flying. Yeah. So, of course, they have jokes with Bernard hating flying as well. Yes, and uh, Albatross Air. I don't know why they use it in both of these movies. It seems bad. (laughs) It seems... (laughs) But Miss Bianca likes it. Miss Bianca loves it. And so, of course, Bernard goes along with her. I don't know why the albatrosses are so bad at flying. It's a it's a biological imperative, but they can't manage it. Uh, That is how albatross do for reals. (laughs) Tell me about albatrosses. I know nothing. The reason why they chose an albatross to be the the bird in this that they ride on, because they were originally going to go with a pigeon or something, is the animators remembered one of the Disney True Life adventures they'd seen that had albatross in it. That is how it looks when albatross take <laughs> off and land. They look ridiculous. They actually do land and like scrape their heads along the ground because... I don't know. They're just stupid. <laughs> they can't figure out landing. That's amazing. I got to look up some albatross videos. Yes, you got to look up some albatross videos because they are hilarious. And so that's why they look the way they do when they're doing the takeoff and landing, because 
that's how they look. And that's why they put that in there for the funny of it. And then, of course, once you've done it in the first movie, you got to do it in the second, right? Right, which unsurprisingly, I, I guess, guess which one I like better. I know. <laughs> I, I'm just a broken record on this episode. But I, I do like this albatross scene. This is one of two scenes in the movie I, I really enjoy. I don't think it's, I can say it's my favorite. But uh, this albatross stuff, I, I think... It's not great. I didn't like laugh out loud. It was more kind of like a, huh. but you know, I, I was, I was enjoying it. They do have a song during the main long flight. Tomorrow is another day. And a lot of it again is yawn. There are a couple parts of it that are advancing the plot ever so slightly like Miss Bianca is falling asleep on Bernard and uh, he's like, Gently putting his arm around her. And she gives him a kiss. Yep. A little sleepy little kiss. Uh, as, as she gives him a kiss when he gets hurt somehow. When he's like climbing onto the plane and he's so upset, she gives him a kiss and then he calms down. I think just before the song, if I remember correctly. Oh, that's right. Just before they're about to take off. Yeah, 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 yeah. But yes, Miss, Miss Bianca has decided that they are a couple. Oh, yeah. She's totally into him. And he's into her too, but he is not going to make the first move at all. So right. she's just going to take over. Bernard's a gentleman. Mm-hmm. And and the relationship between the two of them is is cute. Yep. It's a cute Disney relationship that works better in the second movie. I'm sorry, I'm done. <laughs> I'm not. <laughs> We're done, not Carly. supposed to talk about that one until we get there. We'll get there I when know. we get there. So the, the animation of the traveling once again is, is mostly uh, stop. It's it's very it's limited animation is the term for it. Right. But it's it's very limited. They reuse the albatross movements several times, which they're very graceful when they're flying. But once we get to the Devil's Bayou, as you say, Penny has escaped again. Uh, There's a big chase. They're shooting fireworks to light up the swamp. Uh, The fireworks. Yep. I was just gonna say Madame Medusa is get taken off in her swamp mobile. Yes. They have a lot of fun with the swamp mobile, which again is like. But Penny is in real pain and real suffering. Unlike the Dalmatians of Corella Deville, who seem to mostly be chilling and watching TV, even though death is on the line. Uh, again, I, the t- the tones of this movie, I'm not sure they fit together, but uh, Swampmobile silliness bouncing up and down. Uh, we meet Mr. Snoops, who's just a worthless fat guy. Uh, I do love how Mr. Snoops is animated, even though I find him an annoying and somewhat pointless character. I, the animation is top notch. He, he is just a sphere. And that's that's very funny. Anyway, the fireworks force them to uh, fly down by umbrella rather than making a proper landing. Yeah, they have an emergency landing because Orville gets hit a little bit. Then we meet the swamp peoples. Well, and we also meet Nero and Brutus, the alligators who catch Penny when she's escaping. Are they alligators or crocodiles? I feel like we've said the wrong things. They're going to be alligators. We keep saying the wrong thing. They're going to be alligators, though, because this is somewhere in the southeast United States. And that's where alligators live. Yes. There's Ellie May and Luke, who are two muskrats who aren't funny. Uh, Luke has some super strong liquor that he gives Bernard here, and that is kind of funny. And Orville gets swept into the swamp mobile and sooted up and almost killed, which is kind of funny. And there's a lot of people saying Jehoshaphat. A lot of Jehoshaphatting. And uh, Jeanette Nolan, who plays Ellie Mays, is trying to do a Louisiana accent. And Pat Buttram is just Pat Buttram. He's Pat Buttram. 
He's going to do the one voice he has, which is Pat Buttram's voice. And so they are going to they need to follow the swamp mobile and the actually, no, they need to follow the alligators with Penny back to the riverboat. So they are given even Rude's boat. Even Rude! <laughs> <laughs> Let me guess, you like Even Rude the dragonfly. Even Rude is a good guy. Yeah. He, he would never steer you wrong. And I do mean steer because he's an outboard motor. He is. He's the motor for the leaf boat. And he's adorable. He is adorable. And it's, again, just James McDonald making weird noises with his mouth. Just going like. Bzzz, Which is why it's great. Yeah. And it's it's a really great visual of the two mice on the leaf boat. One thing they get really right in this movie is mice are compelling. Like, that's why they'll end up doing so many mice movies. And especially, like, the smallness of mice when they have to interact with a larger world. I mean, even all the way up through Pixar's Ratatouille, which, don't crucify me, listeners, we don't care for that much. But that does have, you know... It get, lets you do a lot of interesting visual ideas and like, well, what's a boat for mice? It's a leaf pushed by a dragonfly. Uh, and actually, I think this might be where we really meet Snoops, but either way. Yeah. And this is where we really figure out what the what the plot is, why they've kidnapped Penny. We really find out. So the whole deal is Medusa needs Penny to get the devil's eye diamond is the what she wants a specific big diamond that only a small child can get to because of where it's located. And she tells Snoops that he doesn't have a way with children like she does. And I wonder if uh, maybe I'm giving him too much credit, but having recently seen Secret of Nim, it is interesting how this movie is structured by like starting you with the compelling visual of there is a girl in peril for some reason and not exposing the mystery until about halfway through the movie. Having recently watched Secret of Nim, it's similar where it starts with this super evocative scene with Nicodemus going, you know, uh, uh, Jonathan Brisby died today. And you don't know what any of that means and why it's going on until much later in the movie. So it's a sim again, maybe I'm giving him too much credit or maybe he was inspired by this, but it's a similar structure and it is an interesting one. But yes, uh, she's the only she's got to get through the black hole, get a diamond, blah, blah, blah. The important thing is that the gators see the mice and we have the organ scene. They smell Miss Bianca's perfume first and they're attracted to her perfume and then they see the mice and are chasing them. I love, okay, my favorite scene in this movie is the scene with the alligators and the mice in the pipe organ. It is also my favorite scene. I think it's kind of undeniably the best scene in the movie. It is It is so funny. It's a classic Disney short bit. It totally is. It it's, is. It's, you know, the kind of stuff we would see in the wartime era. It made me think of Mickey and the Beanstalk, not because it's exactly doing that again, which I appreciate, but it's a similar, like, you know, the bad guys try to get you and there's some completely ridiculous thing in the way and there's so much yes. physical stuff. There's no talking during this part. Nope. Just the, the alligators are, one of them is playing the organ <laughs> to try to get the mice to pop out of the pipes. And the other one is like above the pipes trying to catch them when they fly up and there's all, you know, so right. much silly business. And then, of course, eventually Madame Medusa comes down to be like, 
shut up, I'm trying to sleep. And then she sees the mice and goes crazy and grabs a shotgun and starts <laughs> shooting at the mice and everybody's hiding. Like, that's what cracks me up there is the alligators are hiding from her. Mr. Snoops is hiding from her. The mice are hiding. And then when her gun finally jams or she runs out of ammo, like everybody's peeking out, like, is it safe? <laughs> that is one difference between her and Cruella DeVille. Cruella DeVille is really smart and mm-hmm. I don't think she ever really fails because of like her own uh, uh, on her own recognizance, as it were. Like usually her henchmen let her down. Sometimes she's outsmarted by our heroes and not so much Madame Medusa. She's she's not quite as sharp. She's just kind of this avatar of pure greed because uh, she's my ex-wife and she wants the divorce money. It's me, Milt Call. I don't know. <laughs> I think that she's just, she's a mad woman. As they say. <laughs> she is. She is a mad woman. Um, and all of this silliness is followed up by one of the saddest scenes of all time, which again, the total shift, uh, which is Penny being very sad. There's a very sad song. She says a very sad prayer. First, the reason why she gets so sad, Auntie Medusa is trying to gain Penny's confidence. Remember? And right trying to like sweet talk her into you know you want you can get auntie medusa that big diamond and she's like it's so hard and and it totally comes to nothing because eventually they will just threaten her right it's true after all her sweet talk eventually she does have to threaten her but penny's like you will take me back to the orphanage after i find the diamond for you right and medusa's like why would you even want that and she's like well if i don't go back to the orphanage i can't get adopted and then Medusa does the thing that I feel like is where they kind of got the inspiration for Mother Gothel a little bit. Why would anybody want a homely little thing like you? Crush poor little girl. Yeah, it is a little Mother Gothel. We're brushing against themes of like abusive motherhood. But with Mother Gothel, they really do it. But this again, it's like she's all over the place as a character. But I, I do think, again, it's notable for tone. But that's what leads into the sad song of someone's waiting for you. And a sad prayer. And you also see that she has just drawn two stick figures and labeled them mom and dad. And she has that framed like a picture in her room, which is the saddest set detail of all time. Finally, though, the mice get up there and meet Penny (laughs) in person. We need to we're going to here to rescue you. And she's like, didn't you bring the police or the army? And they're like, not just us. We got this. And this is the like signature line of the movie, which is like, what can two little mice do? Right. But they do make a plan, which a lot of it is Penny's idea, which is fun. Um, They make a plan of how they're going to help Penny escape that night because they're like, we need to escape tonight before she gets put down in the black hole again. And they send Evenrude off to let the other swamp critters know, hey, we're going to do this. And Evenrude does his part. Evenrude is carrying his weight and then he's literally carrying more than his weight. Yes. Unfortunately, uh, Evenrude gets chased by bats and he gets trapped in a bottle where he's having to hide from the bats. And so the help does not come in time and she's put down the black hole again. But this time Bernard and Miss Bianca go with her. I like how the bats are animated. 
they look they move like real bats. It's good stuff. Yeah. Yeah. They kind of remind me. It reminded, reminded me a little bit of the way the rat in Lady and the Tramp is how it's like it's an animal. Yes, the others, exactly. They're, they're animals, but there are people. Uh, but the rat is an animal and the bats, they're animals. But these other animals, they're people. <laughs> Lifeless glowing eyes sticking out of a black, creepy shape. Uh, of course, the glowing eyes were cheaper to animate uh, is what they told Don Bluth. <laughs> Oh, yes. So the next day, of course, Penny's being put down the black hole again to find the diamond. And Madame Medusa, to uh, motivate her, takes her teddy bear away. Because this whole time you have seen Penny, she's got one arm around her teddy bear all the time. That is her one character trait is she's constantly talking about the teddy bear, which to be fair, she has nothing else in her life. She has nothing else. And she's using it as a as a support, you know, like... Teddy's scared, meaning I'm scared, but a Teddy's scared. So, you know, it's okay. It's okay, Teddy. It's a real, I mean, this happens with abused kids. This is a real coping mechanism for trauma and abuse. But again, it's in the rescuers. It's a bit much for my taste. But yeah, so she goes in the black hole. And this time with the help of the mice, she is able to get the big gem, which is located in a skull. Right. And it's a very it's a very tense, scary sequence. It's a very long, scary sequence. Yes, but everything in this movie feels long. <laughs> that <laughs> except is for correct. The, except for alligator organ scene, which could go on for much longer. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It might, it might not, actually. But so they get the diamond. There's some peril, I guess. Who cares? Uh, the <laughs> Snoops wants to get his half of the diamond, which he thinks... They're going to cut the diamond in half and then give to give him his share rather than we're going to sell the diamond, which is what she wants to do. She doesn't want to keep the diamond. She wants to sell it and then we'll split the money in half. Right. He thinks they're going to split the diamond in half, making it worth much less. And right. But Medusa doesn't want to share at all is the important point, which I got to say, you know, Snoops is all offended by this. He has done nothing. He has contributed right. literally nothing to this entire enterprise. I'm kind of with Medusa on this. Snoops <laughs> doesn't deserve anything. Though she is, uh, looks like she is trying to kill him. So, you know, there's that. They get well, back to know. the riverboat. Medusa, Medusa is threatening both Penny and Snoops with her shotgun. I think their hands are tied behind their bag, or at least they're standing like that. Because I don't remember that their hands are tied later, but they are standing with their hands behind their backs. And the characters from Robin Hood are assembling to save the day. Just straight up reused. <laughs> they were already reused in Robin Hood, some of them. <laughs> it's true. So finally, even Rude is able to get to the swamp creatures and they come to the rescue. And uh, and even Rude gets lit. <laughs> yes. He gets drunk. They give him some of the uh, whatever that moonshine is to get to pep him up. And they end up you doing basically Penny's plan, which was to trap the alligators in the elevator cage of the riverboat, set off all of Snoop's fireworks to be a distraction and steal the swamp mobile to get away. <laughs> and this scene has such wacky music of like, you know, yeah. And like is so silly in general that once again, I feel like what movie am I watching? It's supposed to be the big perilous ending, you know, climactic action sequence. And the scene in the black hole is much creepier. 
Yeah, the scene of the black scarier. hole is is tense. Again, it it feels bluthy, though who knows. But uh, and then this is just pure wacky silliness. This is like the the this has the same tone as the Robin Hood like tournament chase. Yeah, yeah, it does. It really does. Where stuff is happening and going on, but you never even doubt that the good guys are going to win. I mean, they're on top this whole sequence, you know. And it culminates with one of the images from this movie that I feel like I, I always remembered the most from when I was a kid, which is her water skiing, uh, uh, Madame Medusa, I should say, water skiing on gators. Behind the sno- swamp mobile, yes. <laughs> right. <laughs> water skiing on her gators. If she's going to be a serious, you know, abusive kidnapper, like, then she can't also be water skiing <laughs> on gators. It's it's not quite calibrated correctly, in my opinion. But uh, and she will get eaten by those gators. Maybe I they I saw a lot of things. There were people who were like, and then she gets eaten by the gators. It's like, maybe because at the end, she's like smacked into a smokestack and the gators are underneath like like they're mad at her now because they were like her pets before and you know loving on her and stuff but now apparently that she used them for water skis they have turned against her forever i don't know yeah that seems to be specifically what they dislike is being used as water skis which i guess i wouldn't enjoy either i don't know but anyway so maybe she gets eaten by them maybe she gets away it is ambiguous and we just cut straight to the Rescue Aid Society watching a news report of, uh, by the way, we have color televisions now. Yeah. But watching a news report of this uh, reporter talking to Penny about her miraculous, like it's, it's a big story of how she, you know, found this diamond and it was returned to the Smithsonian. And she was adopted by two parents, which I know they're just doing the Disney thing of like, let's get this finished as quickly as possible. Because especially we're seeing it through a news report. I'm sorry for being this dark, but this is a dark movie. It feels like my, I'm not saying this is my interpretation of what they want to do, but it feels to me like, are they just doing this so they can get on TV? Like, which again is a thing that has happened in real life of like, oh, this orphan did something great. Let's adopt her because then we seem like good guys, but we're not going to give her a good home either. I don't think that's what the movie's doing, but because it's been so much realistic, like trauma for and Penny is very much never going to be okay (laughs) from any of this. It's it's unfortunately it's where my mind goes and I I don't feel good about it. That's not how I want to feel at the end of a Disney movie. Right, because there's absolutely no development of, well, these people came to the orphanage and they were just looking for a girl like Penny. And then they found out later, oh, she's the one who, you know, escaped with the diamond or whatever. Right. I think what I want is a, yeah, is a separate scene with the parents. So it's not happening in the same news report. Right. And we're not seeing them through the TV. Like either, as you say, maybe they are there beforehand and there's some conversation between them. where like, we're going to adopt her. Oh no, she's been kidnapped. Or, you know, maybe after the fact, there's some cute scene at the end where they're adopting her. Like, you kind of want a little more for Penny. But again, it's the, especially during the Bronze Era, like, just uh, Robin Hood does this, Aristocats does this. Just Just wrap wrap it up. up. (laughs) Get out. We got three minutes. Yep. So, of course, it's what is her dream? Her dream is to be adopted. Well, then she's got to get adopted. So, new mom status. 
She's adopted. She has one. Yay. Yay. And a dad with a mustache. I don't know. His mustache always weirded me out a little. You know what? He looks like (laughs) Riley's dad from Inside Out. You know what? He does. I didn't even (laughs) think about that until just now. I just now put it together because I was thinking, yeah, there is something about the mustache. Who does he look like? He looks like Riley's (laughs) dad. Yep. And then we get... uh, uh, Miss Bianca and Bernard, they they smooch once again, yeah. which is why uh, no Disney wiki. It's it's not very ambiguous. It's not ambiguous at all. But yes, yeah, she they are going to go on another adventure to rescue someone else. And I do like the line, which I don't think is quite the last line, but it feels, you know, like the summation of uh, Miss Bianca going adventure, thrills, intrigue, exotic places. Oh, darling, let's go. Yes. Which kind of, you know, even though they had no plans of doing a sequel, it does feel sequel setup-y. It feels like, you know, oh, we can have so many more adventures with these right, characters. Right, And they reprise the song, Tomorrow is Another Day, the end. And is it even, uh, even Trude is the one who brings them their even like rude. sequel setup. Yes. Even Rude, sorry. He does. So he is, I like to think he becomes a member of the Rescue Aid Society. Yeah. I have no basis in this, but that is why I choose to believe. And that, as you say, that is that is the rescuers. One more boring yep. song to send you on your way. <laughs> it's the same boring song we already had. <laughs> Which means it is now time for sequels, spinoffs, remakes, rides, and R-V-B-O-O-T. Well, we aren't going to talk about the sequel any more than we already have. Rescuers Down Under. There is a sequel. It is the first sequel in the Disney animated canon. It's certainly the first direct sequel to a movie that has a plot. If you don't, if you don't count like Three Caballeros and Saludos Amigos, which. Yes, Uh, and it's good. And we'll talk about it because it is part of the canon. Uh, Unlike most of the sequels we talk about, uh, there were no direct to video spinoffs because uh, they did the theatrical thing, which for a long time they said they would never, ever do. And that's part of why they didn't put Cruella DeVille in this because they're like, we can't do a sequel. As I believe you said. It's true. Uh, One thing I found that was funny was that um, they were originally going to use Penny as the little girl in Oliver and Company. Which it's funny because originally, of course, the villain in this one was going to be Cruella de Vil. And then they're like, no, we can't do that. And then for Oliver and Company, they're like, let's bring Penny back. She was so great. And then they're like, no, we can't do that. (laughs) Actually, I will say, where did you see that? Because the only place I saw it was... Uh, unverified and the story I read in Disney War about the production of Oliver and Company was different. Uh, but maybe. I, I'm pretty sure it was on like both. I can't recall if it was on the Disney Wiki and Wikipedia, but I didn't. See, those are two sources. They're that, not uh, completely verified. No, but maybe, maybe. I, I also saw this. Uh, it's it's possible. It's again, it's one of those. It would be an interesting. Detail. It's an interesting detail. They didn't do it. But there was some talk about it would have been her and Rufus and then potentially, I guess, the small cat Oliver. But I don't know. Jenny and Penny are are pretty. Jenny is the is the girl in Oliver and Company. Right. They are pretty similar. Right. But, you know, maybe that's just somebody coming after the fact going. These characters are very similar, which I mean, to Disney movies in the bronze era. <laughs> and the other thing I was going to talk about was that. They actually did have Miss Bianca and Bernard as characters you can meet in the parks. And actually, originally, when the movie very first came out, they had like everybody you could meet 
Madame Medusa and Snoops and the alligators and Bianca and Bernard. But now I think actually Bianca and Bernard are only uh, actual walk around characters now at Tokyo Disneyland is what I saw. But they were for a while at uh, other parks as well. I think they're in a parade sometimes. But they're yeah. some they're frequently in parades and things. I don't really count like what characters are in what parades because, you know, they've done so many parades over the years and they, of course, include characters from the movies in all of them. There's not very much. I was surprised. I know. And Rescuers is one you could definitely make a lot of stuff based on because, like, it's so easy. You have a kid imperiled, the Rescuers save them. You could totally do a Rescuers TV show. And in fact, such a thing was discussed. Mom, what do you know about a guy named Tad Stones? Nothing. <laughs> Tad Stones uh, was a Disney animator who got his start working on the Rescuers, where he animated one scene. Not sure which one. <laughs> he moved into the story department on Fox and the Hound, and that's Rough Buddy. From there, he stopped working on like Disney film animation and did some stuff in some other places. He was an Imagineer for a little bit. Uh, he worked on Epcot. And then in 1984, when Michael Eisner, who we're going to talk about a lot, stepped in, one of the things Eisner wanted to do because he had kind of started as a TV guy was revitalize Walt Disney Television and Walt Disney Television Animation. And so Tad Stones jumps over to there. And this is where he really starts doing some stuff. He writes some shorts they make. He was involved with DuckTales, but he was then approached because he'd had a lot of story success to make three spinoffs of DuckTales was originally the idea for a programming block that was going to be called the Disney Afternoon, <laughs> uh, which of course was, was going to be a, a big deal. This was one of Eisner's pet projects and it was of course a, a tremendous success. And because DuckTales was popular... I was the proper age to enjoy that. Yes, indeed. I believe we talked about this extensively on our mailbag episode. And so the Disney afternoon originally consisted uh, of DuckTales and Tailspin, which you talked about in Jungle Book, and the only spinoff of DuckTales that actually properly came to fruition, which was Double O Duck, which became Darkwing Duck. And that was really Tad Stone's first baby. He was the showrunner, writer, creator. Darkwing Duck was really his thing. And as I've said, uh, Darkwing Duck, my favorite of this era of Disney television shows. He was also, I believe, involved with The Gummy Bears, which was the... Uh, other show in the Disney afternoon, but they needed one more show. He was asked to develop an original concept, and his idea was to go back to his start and to go back to, again, a premise that could very easily be a good TV show. Let's do a Rescuers TV show. But at this time, uh, it was the late 80s, Disney was already starting work on the sequel. Uh, that was already in production, and so they're like, we don't want to have two sequels to The Rescuers. So he created a new concept with the working title of Metro Mice. The main character was going to be an Indiana Jones-type mouse. He'd even have a fedora and a fluffy collared leather jacket. Remember that detail? <laughs> uh, and eventually, as they were developing it, this Indiana Jones-type character, which again... Makes total sense, like the Rescuers are already kind of that sort of adventure series. 
uh, even though it's pre-indie. And Kit Colby would be accompanied by a chameleon, uh, a female mouse who would be sort of a mechanic, and uh, a larger mouse who would be more comic relief. Because you got to have the fat one. Yes, indeed. Uh, is this starting to maybe sound a little familiar? Yes, it does indeed. Because he then proposed the show to Michael Eisner and Jeffrey Katzenberg, uh, who we're going to talk about extensively. Don't even worry about it. And coming soon. They liked a lot of the ideas, but uh, they really didn't like Kit. Too Indiana Jonesy and Eisner was a big fan of using established Disney characters, especially on television, because he really uh, one of Eisner's biggest things is he invented Disney nostalgia as a huge <laughs> force in like American culture. He really was like, we need to remind people how much they love our old stuff. So he really wanted them to use uh, some established character and what they ended up using were Chip and Dale because this pitch turned into Chip and Dale and the Rescue Rangers. I can definitely tell. Yes. Yes, that is the that is a very interesting story. Now, Chip and Dale Rescue Rangers, since we have an opportunity to talk about it, since it is a, uh, a rescuer spinoff. Technically. <laughs> now, I did not have a chance to watch this on Disney Plus, um, but I and I only vaguely watched it as a kid, but I know you watch it a lot more. So uh, give us your take on Chippendale Rescue Rangers, if you will. I liked it quite a bit when I was a kid. I remember I don't remember a lot of the episodes as well. Like I there aren't a lot of episodes that I can, you know, picture in my head as, oh, yes, this one was great. And that one was great. To be honest, the one I remember the best is the one that drove me crazy. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that always the way the thing that annoys you is the one you remember. So um, I could I could tell you about the episode I disliked the most, but I'm not going to. Oh, you're not. No, it's a spoiler. No, I mean, I can. It was called something like the the case of the crazy cola or something like that. And I can't even remember what exactly it was. But anyway, what they do, though, is they they solve mysteries. Okay, their their deal is it's a detective agency the rescue rangers that solves crimes that are too small for humans to deal with because, you know, they're usually dealing with other animals and things. And so there's this cult of mice and other creatures like that. Cause of course these are, you know, chipmunks and mice and all that in this show. And they have taken their religion from a commercial for cola. And the part that I remember forever is the song from the advertisement for the cola. It is terrible. <laughs> well, that's a shame that the song was so bad because... Do you the... want me to sing it to no, you? No, not at all. But uh, it's a shame that it's so bad because the uh, the theme song for the show was really good. And the theme song, of course, was R-E-S-C-U-E. Rescue Rangers Society. <laughs> uh, the show generally did well. Again, the, the Disney Afternoon was a huge success, really paved the way for uh, Disney television animation. And that's all I have to say about the Rescuers, but I think that's a pretty good spinoff. And with that, we don't rate these movies on a numerical scale. We instead ask each other two questions, the first of which is, Mom, would you recommend this movie? I would give it a qualified yes. I would mention that it is slow, but that if you go into it knowing that it's slow and you're like, 
I just want to put something on because I'm tired or whatever. You could potentially enjoy it. And you, I'm assuming, would not. <laughs> yeah, no. Uh, the The sequel renders this one totally unnecessary. And I don't think the sequel's like a masterpiece, but I think it, it delivers on the things I want this movie to be. It's much more sure of itself. It's much better animated. This movie is dull. It's similar to a lot of other Disney movies. I, I like it, as I say, less each time I watch it. I'm sorry to say because there is some... They're playing with some interesting themes, some interesting ideas. There's there is some good character animation. It's interesting that this is like kind of a glimpse into what a Don Bluth Disney career might have been. But uh, unless you are like us, you know, going through all of Disney history. No, I, I wouldn't recommend it. I, I find it again. Just I don't enjoy watching it is what it comes down to. And. But uh, by all means, Google the the scene with the organ. I'm sure that's on YouTube. <laughs> would you show it to a child? And yes, I did show it to my children. I would actually say I would recommend it more to a child because they'll be more forgiving. Yeah. As I said, most of my uh, coworkers watched it as a child and uh, we all we all turned out OK. So, yeah. you know, despite having darker themes, it is still kid appropriate because I don't know. Some of that will go over their head and it's not really committing to the themes. And yes, yeah, it's it's not in a it's not child inappropriate in any way. And I don't think there's any there's like one or two scenes that might be a little scary in the in the black mm -hmm. hole. And I don't but... think there's any imitatable behaviors in it. You know, the villain is unlike uh, 101 Dalmatians. She's not calling people idiots as much. Right. And her violence is mostly wildly firing a shotgun, which if you're leaving a shotgun out where children can get to it. That's you've already failed as a parent. So don't even worry about it. Uh, it's all going to go bad no matter what you do. <laughs> Just have an unsecured shotgun. Um, so that is The Rescuers from 1977, a year where nothing interesting happened. And uh, ha, ha, ha. we'll be back next week entering the cocaine 80s with <laughs> the Fox and the Hound. Oh boy, what do you think of this movie, Mom? Well, this is the first movie that we've come to that I'm not looking forward to at all. Yay! <laughs> yes, we have talked many times when we talk about like what are the episodes we're looking forward to the least. We usually say Pocahontas and Fox and the Hound. And here it is. It's the Don Bluth history episode, unfortunately <laughs> featuring discussion of Fox and the Hound. But it's going to be a great time. You're, if you missed... If you miss Shorts Madness, it's going to be a great time to listen to. I'm trying to sell the audience. Yep, it's going to yep, be a great yep, time yep. to listen to. Here's the thing. The less we like it, the more fun we have talking about it sometimes. Precisely. It, it'll bring back that Shorts Madness energy. And, uh, you know, if, uh, don't watch this one. <laughs> Let's just get it out of the way. Just feel free to listen <laughs> to the episode and not tune in. Until then, I am me. And I'm Mom. R-E-S-E-U-E. <laughs> <laughs> it all started with a mouse, all right. <laughs>